Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astros master of banter, Blummer. Happy New Year and welcome to the Bleacher Blums podcast. This is not Jeff Blum. This is not David Tuttle, but just me, producer Ramos, bringing you the best of 2021. We wanted to thank everyone for a great 2021. Thank you for listening, subscribing, but also special thanks to all those who rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps the channel grow, and we are planning some great things for 2022. This episode is going to be some clips that were recommended by you and some favorites of Blum and Tuttle. So sit back and enjoy while we look back at the best of 2021. A new venture for us, uh, the Blue Wire uh, Podcast Network, and we're really excited to be a part of that. And uh, here we go. This is our usual podcast. Yeah, and I hope that everybody found us easy enough. I know that not much has changed other than the label that is going to be on our logo, recognizing the fact that we have joined a a strong podcast network in the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Tuttle was talking about you can go to bluewirepods.com and check out some of their other shows because we are going to be working very hard to mix in with Blue Wire and do a good job for everybody. So we're excited about that. Uh, We are still just uh, doing the same old thing. We're going to be talking baseball. We're going to be talking parenting. We're going to be talking about a lot of sports. And, uh, you know, it's been a slow week. Yeah, this being podcast number 127 for us, and we are rolling along riding that wave that Tuttle is talking about. Uh, You know, I've talked about it a little bit, uh, maybe get a little more into the reason why I wear number 27, but I get to the big leagues and my rookie year, my number, like Tuttle is saying, is number 50. And I get uh, to my second season and the Astros, not the Astros, my gosh, the Expos traded away Shane Andrews and Shane Andrews had number 11. So for the two years of... Uh, 2000 and 2001, I wore number 11 for the Montreal Expos. Uh, I then get traded to the Houston Astros and they gave me number six. And that was the number of the guy I got traded for, Chris Truby. And I I hated single digit numbers. I just felt Uh. like my back was naked with one number on the back of it. I needed two (laughs) numbers. And uh, being the new guy in spring training, I just kind of bit the bullet and was kind of waiting to see how things worked out because we hadn't broken camp yet. I didn't know who was going to be on the team, who wasn't going to be on the team. But I did know that Brad Osmus had number 11 and Brad was an all-star everyday catcher. So I knew I couldn't afford to buy that thing off him. And it just so happened that that was the spring training that CJ Nikowski got released by the Houston Astros. And he was wearing number 27 in camp. And I went, okay, that's the number. And uh, so we break camp and I go into Dennis Laborio, the equipment manager. And I said, uh, I want number 27. I don't want number six anymore. And he went, okay, done deal. And we show up opening day and I have number 27 with the Houston Astros. And from 2002 until the end of my career, I wore number 27. And a lot of the reason for that is, and this again, being fitting that it's 127 is our podcast number. I was married on January 27th. So 127 of 01, I was married. So the 27 was the day I got married. But at the same time, in the back of my head, I'm going, 27. Who wears 27 that's a pretty good ball player at the time? And it was Vlad Guerrero. And I'm a huge Vlad Guerrero fan. And <laughs> here, here's how my brain worked. I went, well, he wears number 27. If I wear 27, will I be as good as Vladimir Guerrero? And it didn't work out, but it w- really worked out in the sense that it became a number that kind of <laughs> identified itself with me. And, uh, it, you know, it represented uh, a good day in my life. And it also represented one of my favorite players when I was out there playing in Vlad Guerrero. So that was the reason that I got to wear 27. And it was kind of cool. I I played for six different teams and every team I played for, they opened up the opportunity for me to wear number 27. So when I got traded to Houston, obviously that's where it started. But when I got traded to Tampa Bay, they gave me number 27. I get released and I signed with the Padres. I show up in spring training and they gave me number 27. Uh, I got traded to the Chicago White Sox in the middle of a season. They gave me number 27. I signed with the Arizona Diamondbacks. They gave me number 27. So I thought it was really really kind of uh, of cool and you know I really respected the fact that they uh, gave me the opportunity to continue to wear that number but that's maybe a little more than you cared to know but that is everything you need to know about the number 27 in my career I think we're going to do something a little bit different here because we've got our producer Mark on here and he's actually been 
trolling, can I say trolling the internet, the interwebs, trying to figure out uh, what fans are asking and what fans are talking about. So I'm going to bring in Mark Ramos real quick to bring some uh, Q&A session here on Bleacher Blums to interact with some of the fans we got out there. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me and letting me be part of this podcast. But the first question is from Lex. Uh, you can find her at LexKiera24. And her question is, how hard was it to get into broadcasting? She works part-time as the Astros tour guide, and she wants to get into the communications department. And she's asking, what advice would you give someone who wants to get into the sports broadcasting industry? That is a phenomenal question. And I get this question a lot because... You know, I don't have the typical background of somebody who went to school to study broadcasting. My my road to the broadcast booth was via the field, and it was via interviews. It was uh, putting myself out there and and hopefully giving appropriate answers and confronting the negative with the positive when I had to do interviews and uh, keeping a you know keeping an open mind to when the opportunities arose and i actually had the opportunity when i was playing in san diego to host a couple of radio shows down there which was a lot of fun so i just kind of threw myself out there as far as opportunities i really never said no to an opportunity uh to go speak in an event to speak on radio to do a you know an impromptu tv uh interview so if you're trying to get into broadcasting in that sense i would say do as much as you can and never turn down the opportunity I know in talking to Julia Morales, there's a lot of hustle involved on the broadcast side, uh, you know, working high school football games or high school baseball games and, and putting yourself out there and just getting as much of your voice out there on tape and getting your getting your face on tape. I don't even know if they use tape anymore, but get your get, get your face and voice digitized and get your get that demo reel going, because the more you do it, the better you're going to be at it and the more the more opportunity you're going to be able to create. And, and you know, there's 20, there's 30 baseball teams, there's 32 NFL teams, there's a ton of NHL, there's all kinds of avenues. And I think now with the internet and streaming and some of these other, other avenues, I think there's plenty of opportunity to kind of get on some of those message boards, apps, and websites to get your resume out there. But uh, the biggest thing for me is to not say no to opportunities. Any opportunity is an opportunity to get your voice out there. So I appreciate that question. And I was just fortunate enough to uh, get the opportunity with the Diamondbacks first and then uh, the Houston Astros, obviously, for the last nine years. I, I am grateful because I love my job and I, I really enjoy it. Tuttle, you got any thoughts? I was just going to say, just to support what you said, Blummer, I mean, obviously, everybody <laughs> has a different path. My brother actually modeled after college. And, you know, there's people that want to get into modeling or acting or you oh, know, you broadcast go. and all this work. I mean, if it's something that you're super passionate about, I know every minor league team that I played for, I wish I played for some more major league teams or any for that matter, but uh, every minor league team, I mean, we had guys that were, they sold tickets during the off season and then they were like the, the radio guy during the season or they were, you know, they were the usher and then they were the VP of something like concessions. Like, I mean, there's so many different things you can do around ball clubs. As you mentioned, there's NFL teams and NHL teams and minor leagues and all of those. That if it's something that you're super passionate about as the Astros tour guide, any opportunity, whether you could move somewhere or um, put a resume together that shows you're interested or do your own, like you said, this day and age, you know, if it's something that you're super passionate about, pursue it, pursue it to the nth degree and you'll make it happen for sure. Good question, Lex. Excellent. The next question is from Melba. You can find her at underscore CC hooks host mom. And her initial question was, do you think the Astros will continue paying their minor league players housing in the future? But if you don't know her story, she's a host mom, uh, you know, a host family there in Corpus Christi. She housed Anoli and Jordan. And I don't know if y'all have any stories of, you know, y'all's experience in the minors with any, any type of host family. Um, I'll take this one real quick. I don't know enough about the minor league system as it's come back, but I know the, that you know Jim Crane has really stepped up and taking care of these guys and paying for some of that housing and trying to offset, you know, not working a full year last year and and paying some of these guys. I I had a host. I had a host mom. I didn't have a host mom. I had like a host family because I literally in AAA. And keep in mind, this is AAA. You know, the money was not good. Uh, I was trying to get by and I found a, a basement in Ottawa, Canada that I lived in. And literally the day I got called up, I was in the basement of that uh, house of the host family living with a French student uh, who was going to University of Ottawa. So 
yeah, host families are are key a key people in the life of a minor leaguer because if you're trying to offset cost, you know those host families do step up and do a wonderful job. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for those families or those people who actually take in some of these minor league ball players. And it sounds like CC Hook's, uh, you know, host mom has got a pretty strong track record of, of, of housing major league baseball players. So if I'm a younger guy moving into Corpus Christi, I might be giving her a call going, Hey, you've got uh, you know, your graduation rate into the big leagues is pretty strong. I would stick with that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, I have such fond memories. I had my first year at Carlson, West Virginia, our host families had a picnic at the end of the year. They put together a photo album. It just really felt uh, like they were making you part of their family. You feel comfortable and not so far from home. And I will say, though, coming out of college, I didn't live in a host family. You said you're in AAA at the time and, you know, doing different things. But there were still host families assigned to you that would check in with you, follow up with you after the game, maybe take you out to dinner, see if everything was all right. So, even if you're not actually living in their residence, there are always people there that are interested in, you know, making you the best version of you. And I think it's a really special, um, it's really special families that are able to do that for us. And, you know, you mentioned already how many played in the big leagues. I mean, I played, you know, nine years in the minor leagues and I was family in five or six of those cities and it was valuable. And thanks for all you do. And uh, yeah. This question is from Daniel Barron and Blummer. I know that you've talked about this when you used to visit Chicago and you were talking about the groundskeeper. Uh, Daniel's specific question was, what was your favorite memory of Willie, the groundskeeper? That's a good question. So there's actually two guys in, uh, in Houston. Willie, who's been around, you know, since the dome days. And then there's another guy named Melvin. And I, I had interaction with Willie. Willie has always been one of the dudes. I remember more of the conversations that I've had, you know, back up in the tunnel because the players parking lot passed, you know, by the groundskeeper area as he walked through the tunnel to get to the clubhouse. So I've always had a great relationship with Willie, uh, you know, when he's setting up the cage and when he's driving the truck around, you know, just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze with him a little bit. If you make a great play, you'd be like, man, Willie, you know, you, I couldn't have done that without you kind of thing because he kept the surface at Minute Maid Park in such great shape. But some of the most fun for me was uh, Melvin was one of the guys that would go out and change the bases and in the middle of the game. So there'd be, you know, the third, I think it was a third and sixth inning. They would actually come out and trade out the bases and drag the field. And every time I would come running to the middle of the field and throw my ground balls to first base and uh, Willie would come by and, you know, it first started out just kind of like a fist pump and then it was a high five and uh, eventually it kind of turned into Melvin would stop and he'd sit there and talk to me and be like, man, that was a tough pitch he struck out on last time. <laughs> you know, we'd, we'd break down at bats. We'd break down part of the game. Uh, he'd come out in the sixth inning, you know, in a tie ball game. He's like, ooh, man, this is stressful. And I'm going, man, you try standing here one time, you know? So it was a lot of fun to have those conversations in. My experience with groundkeepers across the league, you talked about Chicago. The guy had a nickname that he was called the sod father because, you know, he, he had this special mix of dirt. And these guys are truly uh, passionate about what they do. And they're just great blue collar grinders who absolutely take the utmost pride in what they do to those fields. And, uh, you know, part of the part of the fun of making it to the major leagues was playing in some of these pristine you know, cathedrals of baseball and knowing that every time I went on the field, it would be the perfect hop and it would be the perfect cut of grass. And it was just so much fun to go out there. But those guys, I don't believe you, we talked about unsung, like Tuttle was talking about with uh, host families, the unsung heroes are a lot of those groundskeepers who are keeping that grass looking good and keeping that field in shape for those guys to go out there and play the best they can, because that is truly a ton of work. And uh, one thing you don't know about what Willie and Melvin and these guys do in Houston is, is when they're out, when the team is out of town and they open that roof up in the middle of summer to get the sun on that grass at Minute Maid Park, those guys are out there working in the dead of summer, sweating their brains out, making sure that field's in great shape. So a lot of credit to the groundskeepers out there. We salute you. Some of the best conversations. I mean, maybe it's because, <laughs> as you said, Blummer, being around the field, like, you end up talking about your profession so much that you can just, you know, you could just grind it out. Having a hitting conversation with a guy who, you know, holds a rake and takes care of the field for a living can be pretty cathartic. Like, oh, yeah, this is what that at bat was about. And he's tied to it, but he's not tied to it in the same way you are. And so it's almost like an outlet. Like, hey, 
can I come sit in your chair for a minute? And I remember all the groundskeepers coming up and uh, host moms, whether you want to get into broadcasting or groundskeepers. I mean, I think what we're talking about here is passion. If you got passion for your profession, you can make good things happen. And uh, it's really good. To, it's almost like a walk down memory lane thinking about my uh, all the groundskeepers I met and all the host families I had. So awesome. Mark, thanks for bringing those questions. Uh, one quick follow-up. Have y'all seen almost like the reverse effect of the groundskeepers put an advantage to the home team? Oh, yeah. You know, where, where you get like a Ricky Henderson, so they, they water it down a little bit more. Or, you know, have, have y'all seen some of that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, I, I've seen it plenty. Dave Roberts was on our team in San Diego, so there'd be a little bit of a, you know, the, there'd be a tilt on the third baseline because he liked to bunt a little bit. So there'd be a little bit of a tilt where maybe if that ball was rolling on the foul line down that third baseline, it would come back fair a little bit. Uh, you know, in Chicago, I believe it was Chicago, they had some... Chicago or Colorado, there were a couple of places where the grass was a little bit thicker because they had some older guys playing on the infield. So they wanted to cut down on the, the how fast the baseball was moving through the infield. Um, Greg Maddox was a guy when you went and played in Atlanta uh, on days he would pitch. It looked like an abs. It looked like quicksand or a quagmire right in front of home plate because he got so many sinkers and so many ground balls that when you hit it, no matter how hard you hit it, it would just die in this mud. And then just come rolling out of there for an easy ground ball to be uh, be made on that. Uh, there were times, I can't remember, it was either New York or Baltimore, but they would actually water the infield. And the reason they water the infield so much is to create good hops and soften up the field. But they would put down a mat at about 10 feet off the first base in the baseline. And then they'd water over it. And then they'd take the mat off. So there was a dry spot where the takeoff, like the launch pad for a guy who wants to steal bases at first base so instead of it being sticky and muddy and soft, it was dry, hard, and made it a better, you know, launching pad for the guy running bases. That's kind of the the ways that I saw them alter the field a little bit to be a little more conducive to the guy pitching or running or bunting at home. I'm not trying to get any groundskeepers in trouble here. <laughs> no, that's that's just the nature of the beast. You know, it's a, it's a manipulation of the playing surface to to help your ball club go out there and win. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus either, but. It's just, it's just some those, those simple things that you can kind of manipulate a little bit to uh, give your team a, just a little bit of an advantage. And, it, you know, the other team had to play in that same situation, too. If you were pitching, you still had that soft spot out in front of home plate that would deaden a lot of ground balls. My question to you, Tuttle, is, and I'm not sure if you would go up in Bezos's phallic symbol, and because which, <laughs> which totally reminded me of uh, the Austin Powers movie when they started to see the things on the radar and they're like... Colonel, you better take a look at this radar. What is it, son? I don't know, sir, but it looks like a giant dick. Yeah. Take a look out of starboard. Oh, my God. It looks like a huge... Pecker! Oh, yeah. Wait, that's not a woodpecker. It looks like someone's private! And uh, I couldn't help but laugh at that, but my question to you, Tuttle, is... That's the best. If they had an extra seat on one of those vehicles, would you get on and would you want to go to space? I like this in a hypothetical format. I think um, I, I initially, I, I'm going to sound like, a, you know, a mother, a mother hen. I know like my wife and I did a lot, not crazier. We did a lot more things before we had kids. And I think uh, I, I had always thought about maybe going skydiving at one point or another. And I realized that I'm going to wait till the kids get out of the house if it's still something I'd like to do. And maybe I would do it. And I kind of, I guess I'll just carry that over to the space thing. I don't think right now, uh, right as my kids get into <laughs> late high school and start entering college, would be the time to go up to space. But uh, I, I don't know if I'd be scared. I don't. Well, why are you laughing? I don't know if I'd be scared to do it. I mean, I think it'd be fun to go up to space. I, I don't have any sort of qualms about it. You do? It. Yeah, I do. I'm not sure. Wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool to look at the Earth from like, hey, you know? I know you might be like, you know, like, you know, trying to look out the window. But like, anyway, I just think it, I do. Once I think getting up into orbit would be cool. Didn't uh, Bezos and that guy, there was a uh, a random citizen like volunteer to do it. They got back recently. Oh, yeah? I think they landed recently. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't get that far into it. All I know is that the, oh. all I saw were billion dollars in space. Oh. And it kind of it kind of triggered my idea. And I'm like, would I, would I actually get in that vehicle and go up there? I don't know how many test runs I'd have to have some serious research to, to understand what exactly was being expected of this, of this rocket to get me into space. Um, as a kid, I was fascinated by it. And I don't know if it's been years of flying, but dude, I hate heights. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't know if being strapped in a rocket and getting up into uh, orbit is my cup of tea. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that you're thinking about your family first because I, I didn't, even, when I was started to think about this and was going to ask you this question, I didn't even think about my kids. I was just like, man, I'm going to go up in a rocket and see what happens. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, does your life insurance cover that? Can you, can you like say, Hey man, I want my premiums to be the same because, but, but by the way, I'm going into orbit. I, I, it probably doesn't. There's probably a clause that, that, uh, you know, extricates that out of the contract. What I will say is that I think, you know, I grew up in the $6 million man era, remember? And that's how, you know, astronaut Ooh, yeah. Steve Austin got back. They could rebuild us, yeah, dude. dude. So if we came in and we hit too oh, hard sick. in the ocean, you know, you could have a bionic arm and a bionic eye and then, you know, your life would be solid. So I, I it's something I, I'm not, I don't know if it's a realistic opportunity for me. So maybe it's easy to be like, yeah, sure. I'd try it. You know, but if Bezos calls me right now, well, hold on. Bezos, Bezos is calling me. Hold on one second. Uh, yeah. We're going to yeah. go up next week. We Do you want to go? I'd be like, mm. Yeah. I'd be a little, I'd be a little, uh, probably more hesitant than I sound right now, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world. I'm not, you know, I don't think they would just, it's not willy nilly. It's not like flying on a, you know, an old 1965 airplane where they're like, all right, we're going to make this flight over. Yeah, I'd rather you know. go to space than that. All right. We're, we are going to get into that trade deadline. But before we do that, we are going to have a word from our sponsor. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts that help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Yeah, so we 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 touch on the trade deadline and what's on tap. And um, since we've been talking about the trade, Brummer, you've been traded a few times. You were traded on the deadline as well, were you not? Yeah, it was two thousand five. Believe it or not, in that uh, that juggernaut mega blockbuster <laughs> deal that happened on two thousand five uh, between the San Diego Padres and the Chicago White Sox was me going to the Chicago White Sox for a guy named Ryan Moe. Who who never never broke into the big leagues? I don't know if he got past Double A, but that that was the uh, that was a blockbuster trade. There weren't many moves that year, and uh, I was more of an insurance policy for Joe Creedy and Paul Konerko. I'm not sure if that's you know, I don't want to you know degrade what Konerko and Joe Creedy <laughs> do, but. Um, <laughs> You know, Ozzie Guillen felt that I was going to be a guy that could not screw up the clubhouse uh, and contribute uh, when necessary in backing those guys up because Joe Creedy had a bad back. Paul Konerko was, you know, nursing some injuries, but fortunately it worked out the way it did. But, you know, I sat there every July 31st going, hmm, wonder who it's going to be. And that, that year I actually sat down after a game, I, I think a pinch hit against the Cincinnati Reds. And I actually went down to like tie tie the last you know shoe on my on my foot to leave the clubhouse, and I got a tap on the shoulder from Fred Yulman, the assistant GM, and he goes, uh, "Hey Blummer, can you come with me?" And I and immediately, and you know this is a ball player because every guy knows this date. You just, I just went, "Son of a bitch!" <laughs> you know, I'm on a first place team with the San Diego Padres, and I'm getting traded. And I'm thinking worst case scenario. You know, I'm thinking I'm getting traded. You know, I don't know where who was bad at the time, but I just figured I was getting traded for somebody else. And I go into Bruce. Bo- You're getting traded back to a Lou Pinella team. Oh God, that, I'm gonna. I would have announced my retirement. <laughs> I guarantee you that. I would have said I am retiring. I, I'm opting out of this. Uh, that my no trade clause is. I'm going home. But uh, I get into Bruce Bochy's office, and he's got that massive skull in his hands, and he. He's got his head down. Uh, Kevin Towers is sitting on the couch next to me, and he's kind of got this, you know, this sheepish, sad looking uh, on his face. I know what's coming, and Boach kind of, oh, Blummer, Oz again, and the White Sox called and said that they need a utility guy. 
And I was like, freaking White Sox. I'm like, dude, they're 15 games up. What do they need me for? And then my second thought was, oh no, they're 15 games up. I better not screw this thing up. An untold story in that in that how, meeting. How'd that work out that, for you, Blum? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe if we, into if we were, a, the form of the, a statue the, and a, like some other <laughs> shit. Like, yeah, not, I was going to say, our bad, producer, right? Mark Ramos, on the other side right now, who's not on camera, is probably just going, that son of a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Shaking his head. There he is. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, an untold story out of that out of that uh, meeting is that I'm sitting next to Kevin Towers, and we created a very good relationship. You know, that was the year my triplets were born. There was a lot going on, but Kevin Towers looked at me across the way and just he goes, "I know you're on a one year contract." He goes, "When when the free agent market opens up after the World Series, you will be my first call." So obviously, 2005 ends the way it does. And God's honest truth, the first call that Kevin Towers made that offseason was to me, and I became a Padre again. So the late Kevin Towers was an incredible man and uh, an incredible GM and uh, actually kept to his word, which I greatly appreciate and is rare this day and age. But uh, that's that trade deadline story. But you've been traded for your trades are friggin' blockbusters, man, in every sense of the word. The problem is I was the Ryan Moe of the of the trade that year. They didn't know that at the time. At the time they're going, you were you were that future piece that was like, oh, throw you put Tuttle in this, done at deal. At least at least I wasn't I was right above the player to be named later part of it. So I don't even remember who the yes, player to be named later was. You got was. named early. And yeah. And this is also, to your point, this is kind of when you are in a trade like that, it's kind of the most notoriety as a minor leaguer. You were a big leaguer when you got traded, but as a minor leaguer, the most notoriety you get. And the, the scene is very similar. It's not Kevin Towers and Bruce Bochy, but I was in a high A ball or double A at the time. Gosh, Chattanooga. I was back to high A ball. So I'd played double A. They had me in high A ball and they did the same thing. I think it was before the game and they're like, uh, you're not going to suit up tonight. And I was like, what? And it was it was on the deadline day, and they brought me into the. Uh, oh wow, you were a deadline deal too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was the actual day nice. of the deadline, July 31st, and they called me in the office, or they. It was our manager who, you know, I mean, at this well, he's day speaking age, for the organization. It's a they. Yeah, yeah, it's a <laughs> thing, but it's a they. But he uh, he called me in the office, and it is. It's it's the old Bull Durham like shut the door kind of thing, and and I remember Winston Salem. <laughs> is a really weird little, like Winston-Salem, North Carolina, but the way the field was, we just had our own little kind of clubhouse out in left field and the, you know, the office for the manager's teeny tiny and there's a little chair or couch in there and he's like, hey, you just got traded for David Wells, one of your teammates as well. So I got Boom. traded for David Wells. So Mark Lewis and myself got traded from the Cincinnati Reds organization to the Detroit Tigers and David Wells from, from the Detroit Tigers to the Cincinnati Reds. I believe there was a player to be named later in that trade. We could probably look up who that was. The trade deadline of 1995. And uh, How about that? Yeah, yeah. And so if you Google my name, you'll find me in the minor league statistics, but you'll also see, you know, that'll come up with David Wells, like traded for David Wells, but... And and to your point, at the time you don't know you're not making the big leagues. I was still relatively young, had a little time in Double A, mostly A ball, and uh, and the Tigers, you know, welcomed me in. They were like, "Hey, we have a plan for you. We've seen you as a starter. We'd like to see you in the bullpen. You're going to go down here and throw." And I pitched well for them. And they did send yep. me to. They didn't send me to winter ball. I got to. Oh, I went to the Arizona Fall League that year. Which, I mean, what more? What more kudos can you get? not being a top prospect, but going down there. And I played with guys that you know well. I mean, you know, I think uh, Andy Bennis was our one of our starting guys. I played with uh, Jermaine Dye on that team. There were a bunch of, and we played with, I mean, the craziest guys I ever met, like Bluma. Remember Jamie Bluma from Wichita State? Oh, yeah. Did he, didn't he play yep. for the Padres? I can't remember. I think he did. Yeah, so that here, guy. Here's was, the trade. You ready for this? Detroit yeah. Tigers traded to Cincinnati Reds in exchange, traded David Wells to Cincinnati in exchange for CJ Nikowski, David Tuttle, and a player to be named later. Tigers received Mark Lewis. Oh, the Tigers got him, yeah, Mark Lewis. There yeah. You go. All right. So there you go. You know, I, I was born and raised here in Houston, so I'll, of course I'm always a Houston fan. And y'all growing up on the West Coast, was there a team or is there a team that? Uh, on a jersey that you would wear or that you would never wear like you know that's that's the rival you're you're never you're never going to see you know Blum wearing this jersey or you're never going to see Tuttle wearing this jersey do y'all have any any type of affiliation or or anything that's like a rivalry with that 
You know, that's a really good question because I grew up in the LA area. So growing up, I was watching a lot of Dodgers, a lot of Angels, a lot of San Diego Padres. And I did have an idea as a young 11, 12 year old that, man, one day I want to play at Dodger Stadium and I want to wear that Dodger blue. Wouldn't that be great? Good Lord, if that hasn't changed 100%. There is no way I would ever see myself in a Dodger uniform or want to be seen in a Dodger uniform right now, (laughs) considering that I played for the Padres for three years and enjoyed that rivalry. And then everything that has happened since being a, a Houston Astros broadcaster and watching them beat the Dodgers in the World Series. So the Dodger uniform for me has done a complete 180, and I would never put that uniform on ever. Well, that Blummer, you and I are aligned there being a Giants fan, a lifelong Giants fan of (laughs) Bay Area. I would never put on a Dodger uniform. I will say this, too. All right, here we are. It is my pleasure to introduce a guy who is our own version, baseball's version of Goodwill Hunting. A lot of odd jobs, a lot of work before he actually made it to the big leagues. This guy is ex-Astro Evan Gaddis. It is great to see you in person. I wish it was in flesh so we could actually high-five each other and get back to the old times, but it's good to see you, and thank you for coming on, Evan. Good to see you too, man. It's good to see you, Blummer. Appreciate you having me. Well, it was was bound to happen just because what a lot of people don't know is that Evan and I have, uh, we created a relationship in a lobby of a hotel drinking beers. (laughs) I know that's going to be a lot of shock to people, but Evan is actually a huge fan of of watching Astros baseball. And we'll we'll touch on that in a little bit because uh, we text back and forth. Evan's got some good insight and I know he's active on Twitter, uh, which a lot of fans love, but... uh, I want to, knowing what your past is and how hard it was for you to get to the big leagues, I want you to talk to us a little bit and tell the fans what it was like when you finally made it to the big leagues with the Atlanta Braves. Man, well, first of all, I think I made it a lot harder uh, than it had to be, but I mean, I had talent and everything and um, man, I did not, I was not mature enough. I don't know how some of these kids, I mean, they get money and they're 18 years old and they're like... I'm just looking at him like, how do you guys, you guys are in pro ball at 18 and you guys have your head on straight. This is awesome. Like anyway, so there's that. I kind of made it a little harder on myself, but then somehow, some way made it. And uh, I guess I remember uh, getting called into the office, uh, Freddie Gonzalez's office and all the coaching staff is in there. It's about the like last week, last couple of days of spring training in uh, down at Disney. And it was like, um, like, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, did I, did I, did I do something wrong? <laughs> like something I'm like getting called, getting called to the principal's office or something. It's like, uh, and uh, let me know. I was, um, I was going to break with the club and um, I just lost it. I, I would walk out of the, the uh, I walk out of the uh, coach's office afterwards and uh, I'm crying. Like I look over Freddie Freeman's looking at me, just like nodding. It's like, he knows the feeling. It's just like cool life goal. But that was the beginning. And um God, I was kind of playing to get sent down in a month whenever McCann came back from his shoulder surgery. So I was like, man, I'm just going to have fun. That's what my agent, Brian Peters, said to He's like, hey, man, have fun. Enjoy it. Learn whatever you can. Do whatever you can. Um, you know, we'll see how it plays out with McCann coming back. And, uh, man, a um, few more extra DH games that year. I think uh, a little more interleague games. So they kind of decided to keep uh, to keep three catchers. And uh, let me DH and pinch hit some stuff, and then ended up playing a little left field, which was terrifying. But um, good team, it was fun, man. Somehow I made it through. Somehow my stomach knows it. <laughs> we talked about speaking this. of fun team, <laughs> and we talked about this through text the other day. How we were talking about you know watching baseball now that we're not playing, and maybe enjoying it a little bit more because the stresses of the physicalness, the mental aspect of it. Uh, the grind of the everyday game. And we were talking about that 2015 year was kind of a breakout year for the Houston Astros. And it had to do with you getting traded to the Houston Astros. And I thought it was kind of funny how, you know, in our, in our text back and forth, you know, that's what, that was the year as a broadcaster, I really started to kind of enjoy the aspect of broadcasting because the team was getting better. I, I had a more of a feel for how to broadcast a game, but then all of a sudden you guys exploded and you were the probably one of the most entertaining teams in all of baseball. You had a young Lance McCullers, you had Carlos Correa splash on the scene. You show up with your beard and you start raking things out of the yard, you know, neck high and you, everybody's going, who is this guy? And you turn into captain caveman, but you, you compared it to a travel ball team. <laughs> yeah, it's what it felt like. It was like, uh, I got goosebumps. I literally got goosebumps right now. 
that was so fun. We were just like, don't let us beat your ace. Like we would just like, we would like work like pitchers and frustrate people. We were so, we were underrated, but we were not like, I came in with like the expectation of no expectations. Like, Hey, like rebuilding, we're getting better, but we'll see how they're going to be. Like, I didn't know. I was just happy to be in Texas, happy to be whatever. And I had no idea the analytics side of the Astros and how smart and AJ, how he ran spring training just from day one, the, the little meetings in the beginning, him and Trey, God, they really, the, how involved we were as a team, as a unit. It was just so being on a team that really tried, you know what I mean? It's hard to talk about now because like you, you like, cause the science dealing, we're like, you're like, yeah, no, no kidding. You tried, you tried everything, whatever. But, it's like uh, before that in 2015, six, I was like, wow, this team, I think I like called my mom. I was like, wow, this team is trying. And it was exciting. It was easy to get behind. And I think that's kind of why I'm still an Astros fan. It was like, like, all right, I know the Braves, they spent a lot of money and they tried and, but it was different here. This was like, like a system. How did Crane put it? To build a system that builds itself. It was pretty cool. And uh, I think that's what him and Lunau did. I, th- I was just, I was blown away by it. It was really cool. And then on top of that, somehow just all our personalities, everybody just kind of got to be themselves. God, we all meshed. We had a lot of fun, genuine fun playing. It was really cool, man. I've got one last question for you, and it just kind of popped into my head because the Astros just got done playing in Dodgers Stadium. And I, I, I know that you've seen games on the road how how what are your emotions when you're watching ex teammates go into some of those environments and play where they're just getting screamed at incessantly? Right now, I get at the moment for whatever reason I'm emotional, but like pitch one of that game, it was like the juice before the before the first pitch. It was like I was there. It's like holy smoke! You could tell. I was uh, I was looking at who was sitting next to me. It's like man, you can't tell it, but that is loud. That's fifty eight. Right. I was really, I was really sad after the cheating scandal came out for some of our players because I wouldn't play anymore, so I didn't have to wear it as much as them. But just to know how how much like these guys love baseball, just like they worked their whole life to and love baseball, and it sucks. So it's like it sucks that they're just like forever, you know, like uh, that they get that's unfortunately that's the way that's what we did and that's what will happen so a lot of people just always remember them for that but i don't know i know them yep we do you're you're a good dude evan i can't thank you enough for coming on this podcast and thank you for coming on man all right brother do take care walking up to the plate did you have any interesting interactions with catcher in uh 2005 I'm playing with the San Diego Padres. I get traded to the White Sox. We go to the World Series. Everybody knows that one. But I'm digging in. As I'm digging in, Brad Ausmus is the catcher. And it couldn't have been more bizarre to dig into the left-handed batter's box at Minute Maid Park and have one of my good friends from two years previous in Brad Ausmus behind home plate. So as I'm digging in, I'm like, hey, Brad, how's it going? And, uh, you know, it kind of calmed me down a little bit. And as we're talking, we get into a little more of our regular commentary to each other, shall we say. And I said, Hey man, I know you've got that house in San Diego. He's talking about his house in uh, San Diego. And I, and I said, yeah, man, I go, it's a beautiful place. And I go, I couldn't thank you more for allowing me to stay there with your wife while I was playing in San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 and if you said that to just random people on the street, of course, you'd probably start a street fight, but because it was Brad Osmus, it went over extremely well. And I got a smile out of him. And it was highly entertaining, and I kind of chuckled a little bit too. And uh, I had just had I just had the triplets that year, and he <laughs> he he comes back at me and goes, "Hey, thanks for taking care of my triplets." And I was just <laughs> like, "Man, <laughs> it, was, it was just it, it was too good to be true." It was just one of those random freaky conversations. But the fact that it happened at the World Series kind of made it a little bit more more entertaining. But it, that's kind of how the that's probably the best interaction I've had with a catcher is with Brad Hosmus back there. All right. It is my great pleasure on the Bleacher Blums podcast to welcome a very good friend and also a guy who has been immersed in the game of baseball for a very long time. And just to get, try, try to give a brief background. His name is Victor Rojas. 
We call him Vic up in the booth. I got a chance to meet him as he was doing play-by-play for the Los, man, it kills me when I got to say Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, but I remember them as a California Angels as a kid growing up. But Vic Rojas spent 11 years behind the mic with the uh, Angels. He also spent time with the Diamondbacks and Miami Marlins, but uh, his father is Cookie Rojas, played in the major leagues for a while. Vic has his own experience inside baseball. Just an all-around, truly great human who actually decided to step away from the mic and go and and run a ball club. He is now the president of the Frisco Rough Riders. But real quick, I just want to welcome in Vic Rojas. It's been a while since we've talked. I, I, I We don't travel, and that might be part of the reason why you stepped away, but I miss you greatly, and thank you for coming on, Vic. How have you been, man? I'm doing all right, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, you guys having to scrape the bottom of the barrel to, to find a guest and, and to have <laughs> me on. And that introduction, as far as all-around great human, I think I'm going to cut and paste that and put that on my resume and just leave the rest of it blank. <laughs> I just, you know, my name, all-around great human and that's why you should hire me from now on i love it yeah put put me on your resume list i will i will gladly give you that reference call Uh, but uh your father just going back in time a little bit and helping people understand how you've gotten into this game but your father cookie rojas played i don't know how many years but i know he played more than 10 and racked up over 1500 hits played for kansas city philadelphia st louis uh, cincinnati uh, eventually went on to coach and managed a couple of years in the big leagues. Tell me about your dad and what kind of impact he had on you. And did he encourage you to get in the game or what, what kind of influence did he have on you? You know, I, I don't think, um, I don't think he ever once said that I'd like for you to play baseball or, or kind of influenced the direction that any of his kids wanted to go. You know, I had three brothers and um, all four boys and you know we all played baseball just because we were around it so much growing up but um, I, I think the influence that he and my mom obviously both uh, ha- has had a major impact on, at least on my life and I'm sure on my brother's lives is just the, the fact of having to to pick up and, and leave their country in 1960-61 uh, leaving Cuba to come to the United States and you know not really speaking the language uh, only really knowing baseball, having some friends and family here and with everything that was going on there and, and really assimilate as quickly as, as he was capable of doing. He started his career with the Cincinnati Reds. It was traded over to the Philadelphia Phillies and it was with the Phillies where he, he got to the big leagues and had a really good run there in the 60s before a brief trade to St. Louis and then ending up in Kansas City as the veteran player on a, on a new franchise, essentially new franchise. Uh, when he got traded there and ended up his career and in, in, in retiring in 1977. So, um, you know, 16 years for a guy who's 5'10", 100 and nothing, and a slap hitter, knew how to bond, knew how to hit, the, hit and run. He just did the little things right, and I think that's what I've taken away uh, from his career is just that uh, we're not all the number three or four hitters with, with prodigious power and being the guy that uh, always steps up and everyone just stops to watch the game on you know, on 25 man rosters, you need different types of players. And I think that across the board, not just in sports, but in the real world, uh, it applies. And, uh, that's how I've always looked at, um, you know, even in my role currently with the rough riders, that's how I looked at the hiring process. And yeah, I'd love to have all these stars that come in here, but there's sometimes you, you pick up on certain tendencies or conversations with an individual that, you know, you, you connect with them on a different level. The resume says one thing, but your gut and your, your interaction with them tells you another and you, and you pull the trigger on that person and you, you, it turns out that they're the one that ends up leading the pack because they just have that grind. They have the, 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 the fire in their belly. And that, that's something that I've always gravitated towards. And uh, I've tried to kind of share with my kids along the way. You know, life comes full circle. Um, Vic, I appreciate you coming on our podcast. And I, I, I echo what you uh, said. I'm going to take, Blummer's never said that about me in terms of an all around great human, but I'm going to have <laughs> to get him to do the same and make that on my resume. That's right. <laughs> Um, you know, it's funny that you brought that up. My, um, my dad passed away about 17 years ago and he never forced me into sports, but I obviously played sports my whole life. But my wife is, a, a an immigrant. My wife was, uh, same thing. They packed up the car in uh, communist Czech Republic and drove across the border and never looked back. And I think that, um, when you bring that up, I mean, there's a special passion there to, uh, you know, making it on your own, not speaking the language and starting from scratch, but um, I had the good fortune to play with Team USA down in Cuba 
um, way back when. And, uh, you know, we went to Havana and Santiago, Cuba. And uh, I remember standing on the mound in, in Havana in front of like 60,000 fans waiting for them to quiet down, you know, like it was between innings, it was loud and it never stopped, especially when we were in the field. It was crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you encapsulated it all, really, just standing on the field and, and listening to a roar of a crowd and uh, a country that has been starved for on any number of different levels, obviously, but uh, for for live action baseball, especially Major League Baseball, or or you know, at the highest level of amateur baseball, and being Team USA, uh, it, it you know, like like the Dominican, like Puerto Rico, Mexico to a certain degree as well, as far as uh, the love of the sport and uh, you know what it means. It's not so much about the chase of the major league dream, because obviously that I think every little kid growing up that loves baseball, that's always the dream. That's my son's dream right now at 15 years of age. I had that dream. Uh, but when you're in a country like Cuba and you are limited across the board from a, from a resources perspective, uh, you, you see things periodically from a major league baseball perspective and you, and you see that 90 miles to the North is key West and, and the opportunity for freedom. You know, it's one of those things you have to make a, a tough decision on. Do I risk my life and that of my family to, to try to, to, to leave an oppressed communist country to pursue a better life? And that really, that's what it boils down to. I mean, the, the icing on the cake is getting to the big leagues if you get there. But it's it's more about getting to the United States and trying to find a better life for yourself. You know, just trying to get out of it, whether they land in the Dominican or Haiti or United States or Mexico, they're just trying to leave a country that firstly has nothing. And I think, you know, for the longest time, and I know a really long-winded answer to your question, but uh, there's there's been an uprising here of late. And uh, it's, it's always been there, especially in South Florida, because of, uh, you know, the Cuban population down in Miami and Dade County and, and Broward County. But even the Cuban people are starting to stand up for themselves. And I thought things would change once Fidel passed away, but it's it really hasn't. And until that Castro family is completely eradicated uh, and they finally see the light and, and kind of get to where we are now in our society and in 2021 and, and get with the times. Uh, it's unfortunate that the people of Cuba continue to have to live the way that they do, you know, scrapping for food and, and having their liberties, you know, trampled upon uh, on a daily basis. Well, I mean, use the word encapsulate with my question. And I mean, please don't apologize for being long winded. Cause that's, I mean, that's what we do. That's what this forum is all about. I would say the same exactly um, in regards to my wife, which is, Blum started with the question about your father. My father-in-law, I never met, but same thing. It takes a lot of heart and soul and, and, you know, vision to just pack up your family and leave. And like you said, I think you, you nailed it with that, you know, playing in the big leagues or playing a sport you love for a living. That's every little boy's dream. That's icing on the cake. But there's so many other stories, like you said, about oppression and risk and challenges and things. And appreciate you touching on that because I think that's I mean, that's the human side of this. And it's fantastic that you're probably um, thankful to your parents to get you where you got because, uh, you know, America is a great place to live and we talk about it all the time. So, no, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I've been I've been stubborn over the years saying that I'll never I'll never go to the island until it's normal, until the Cuban people are are celebrating in the streets that, you know, they finally got their their liberty and uh and you know, the older my mom and dad get, dad's 82 now, and my mom's going to be 82 uh, later this year, the more concerned I get that I'm never going to get that opportunity because I, I want to go back with them. You know, I want them to, I want them to uh, kind of walk me through things, you know, and, and show me kind of where they grew up and stuff. And it's, it's, it's hard. And it's something that means a great deal to me. And it might, I might just have to swallow my pride and and suck it up and go and, you know, and MF all those guys that are still there. But um, just to have that opportunity to, to share that with my parents would be something that would be very special to me. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> That's one thing I tell my son all the time. I said, don't, don't look behind home plate for the scout, the TCU guy or the Arkansas or the Alabama guy. Those are, those, one, those are the ones that want to be seen. The real scouts and the ones you always have to watch out for the guys are sitting in their car or at the top of the hill or watching you, how you walk onto the field or run onto the field. If you're slapping high fives, those are the, those are the real scouts, right? Because the, the baseball side of thing, everyone, if you're good, you can see the baseball side of thing. 
The real scout wants to see the other, the intangibles that you bring to the table. If they bring you into their program, what type of person you are, what type of teammate. So I, I've always put this in his head, like you're in a fishbowl now, man. No matter what, the minute you get out of the car, just assume somebody's watching you and and your actions and just just act accordingly. Just be cognizant of it and you'll you'll be fine. We got a couple more segments before we head out of the bleachers. And of course, this is Tuttle's time. What Tuttle You know, it's funny, it seems a little um I don't know. It's not disingenuous. A little we gotta lighten the mood here. So I, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go really light. Uh, I drive around for my job quite a bit. And, uh, you know, you take the family out to dinner and you see things. But Total driving stories are the best. Oh, they are. And, well, you have driving <laughs> stories too, AirPods or whatever. But uh, Oh, yeah. So I see it all the time. But it's, it's typically employees. But it's like people and employees stealing, <laughs> stealing the best parking spots. Oh. Like, I don't understand. Like, that's, that's again, uh, most of my what'll tuttle says are like, you know, moral compass things. Like, how do you gauge? Yeah, put the shopping know, cart back, damn it. Yeah, that's right. So there you go. So this is like, I see employees all the time at medical offices, uh, at the mall. They'll pull up right in front of their retail store. Like, you know, I was going to the store the other day and it's the employee and you go out there and they're on lunch break and they're sitting in the like A1 spot. You're like, what? I mean, that's the worst thing for business. So you're making your customers drive around the lot and look for a good parking spot while you're sitting there in the A1 spot. Like, when did that become a thing? Like, I worked at the mall in the off season when I was a minor leaguer making $1,000 a month for five months or six months. <laughs> and they, they used to have employee, during Christmas, they would make us park like eight lots over and we'd have to take a bus over to the mall. Like, I mean, yep. like save the parking for the people that are going to spend their money at your store. And now you know, being a little more successful, or if I was running a business, I'd be the same way. Like I, I just, I would park as far away as possible. I see way too many people with handicap placards that do not need the handicap placards. <laughs> my, my, my grandmother was 97 and my father, my dad got a handicap placard because when he would take her places, mm -hmm. she couldn't walk very far. She was 97. So he would, yeah, we'll call that the Bob Euchre pass. I must be in the That's front right. row. There you go. So she, he would park somewhere to take her to Denny's at five in the afternoon for, you know, the early <laughs> bird special four 30 in the afternoon for dinner. Wine and dine. There you go. But when he had that placard all the time, right? He had it a hundred percent of the time in his car. When my grandmother, God rest her soul, as they say, when she wasn't with him, did he once pull that card out and park in a handicap spot? No, no. Because it's not the right thing to do, people. It is just wow. not the right thing to do. He was not. I mean, he's a, he's a shining example of morality. He is not. That's my point. He just did the right <laughs> thing. Like, shouldn't we all do the right thing? I am so sick and tired of watching employees pull into the front spot and be like, all right, you know, I just finished my food. Now I'm going to go in and sit behind the thing. I mean, Blummer, you have to have seen this before. So this <laughs> now it turned into two subjects, right? Who needs the handicap placard and who doesn't? And why are employees stealing the front row spot? This is something that the mailbag could probably help us answer. You, if you work in a store... Do not take front row parking. Thank you. My brother, Jeff, shout out to him, sent me a text message saying, you know, here, here's one for the Bleacher Blums mailbag. And I told him, I won't read it. You have to submit it through our bleacherblums.com <laughs> website. There's certain protocols. Or our Bleacher Blums uh, Instagram. So I refuse to, no. <laughs> I didn't say that, but his text message is like, hey, I got something for you. He goes, you know, the things that I rant on, right? Shopping carts in the parking lot, things like that. So this is another one. My brother lives up near San Francisco, so he'll see this more than most. But if you live in New York City, San Francisco, any big city, you can attest to this. But he wanted to know what benefit comes from uh, whacking the crosswalk button like 75,000 times before you cross. <laughs> and I thought, I th now we know that Tuttles think alike, right? Because that's something that's crossed my mind before too. And it's usually, I mean, it is funny. I, I, it made me think about it. So he sent this to me a couple of weeks ago and I happened to be walking somewhere recently. <laughs> and there was this like 18 year old kid and he was like, you know, he's just, I mean, just like whacking. Yeah, like, and you want to go, hey, <laughs> I mean, look, Bruh. the light's green and we know it's green that way. When that light goes red, it will give us that little walking man. It might even beep and it might say, walk, walk. 
walk, but it's not coming any faster the more you push it. So, I mean, what more appropriate thing to say in uh, what'll Tuttle say segment than like, what are we doing people? Like hitting that button 75,000 times before you cross is not going to help it go any faster. Dude, it's so yeah. true though, man. I got this. And I mean, so, how about in the elevator too? Like, the, the, you know what? You know what? In the elevator, in the elevator, the door, you know what the biggest farce in the world is? The biggest lie to anybody who's ever been in an elevator is the door close button. Oh, yeah. That thing doesn't work. That thing no, never works. No. Yeah. They put it there because they know people are wacky and crazy and the psychology gets to them. So, and, and that does translate. So the crosswalk one translate, um, producer Mark just sent me a note saying there are rumors that the actual walk buttons are not connected to anything, which I actually, that's funny, right? That would be really funny. Yeah. What? Well, think about it. So you've been in New York city plenty of times in New York city. They don't have buttons. (laughs) Like, when I've walked, I, I walk 20 blocks in New York City and you can keep walking all the time. You either walk this way with the traffic and or you go cross. Yeah, You're you like, oh, I'm going to cross yeah. and then keep going down. So you can always zigzag and go, but there's no buttons in New York City. When the light goes green, the walk sign goes. When the light goes red, the walk, you know, the don't walk sign comes up. Yeah, they're in most like most big cities, there aren't even buttons because they know there's so many pedestrians. It just goes every time. But they're not connected to something. Ah, now we're getting that's somewhere. messed up. That's messed up. Yeah. Man, somebody needs to be written up, taken to court. I don't, that's messed up. Just cut. I mean, there's nothing connect. It's just a stupid button that just, hey, let's go up there and touch the button a thousand times and it won't do anything. That's messed up. All right. Here it is. We got facts. We got facts. New York City, in New York City, only about a hundred of the thousand crosswalk buttons actually function. <laughs> Confirmed a spokesperson from the. This is great. My brother will appreciate this. Confirmed a spokesperson from the city's Department of Transportation in an email. Other cities such as Boston, Dallas, and Seattle have gone through a similar process, leaving them with their own placebo pedestrian buttons. I love that they even call it placebo. And my mind is blown. Like I must say, I'm not a thousand. We're getting I'm not played. A, I'm not a thousand button pusher. We are getting played. I'm not a thousand button pusher, but I did think they were connected to something. I've got a little bit of a story to tell. So I have had a lot of follicle top of the head hair issues in my career, whether it be whether, you know, colors or style of cut. And now that I am a 40 year old, 48 year old uh, father, I apparently having a mohawk or a faux hawk is not cool. And uh, my wife made this readily apparent to me. And I had to go get my hair cut the other day because I I had a faux hawk and I went into the to the to my stylist. Yes, I have a stylist. I was going to say uh, <laughs> you are on TV. I mean, you're I'm allowed to say it. Yeah, you yeah, weren't born with a stylist. This is some, something no. that you've acquired along the way. I, I get no, it. No, I, I pay to be styled. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I pay a lot of money to be styled. I don't I don't do this by choice. But in doing so, I was given the opportunity to to get another faux hawk, and I already knew that my wife was not a fan of it. So about eight weeks ago, I said, Ah. Cecilia, let's go. Just faux hawk this thing out, man. Let's go. I'm ready. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take the heat, dude. I thought I was gonna get a divorce, man. I oh. came home with this thing, and Mama was pissed. Huh. I don't know if she can hear me, yeah. but Mama was pissed. Mm. And I mean, she was like, "Oh, you're gonna do this behind my." I got the whole attitude uh, and the whole thing. Wow. I was like, "Dang!" And part of me should have been like, "Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I will get rid of it." Being who I am, yeah. I just put a little more product in it and fired that thing out there a little bit further. And it didn't go so well. So I, I went to the stylist uh, the, yesterday and mm. the faux hawk is gone. I'm, I'm happy to inform everybody and my, my marriage is back to normal. I'm allowed in, uh, in, the, in the bedroom and I don't have to sleep on the couch anymore and mm. I, I'm back. So that kind of explains why it's so high and tight right now if you can see it on the short hop. I'm sorry to interrupt this Bleacher Blonds podcast, but I've obtained an exclusive reaction to these events from none other than Corey Blum. And here's her side of the story. Okay, y'all, this whole faux hawk controversy. All right, so let's clear the air, why don't we? Um, He came home with it once. I just told him I didn't really care for it. So he went back to his old hairdo. Um, he came home with it a second time. And then I was like, oh no, Mm -mm. no. Okay. He doesn't have to see the back of his head. 
I see the back of his head. That's not a party. I'm not sure what that is going on back there. But I, I've been doing this for 20 some odd years. It's, his hair has been red, white, and blue. It's been orange because it wouldn't go back to platinum after being black. It's spiky. It's, it's been everything. It needs to be done. And yes, he's 48 years old. So it's time. By the way, have you seen my husband? He's pretty smoking hot. So he doesn't need some crazy hair do to help him out. So I rest my case and may the faux hawk rest in peace. (laughs) Just like we do on this podcast, we want to thank the people that do the right thing most days, which are first responders, uh, frontline healthcare workers, teachers, um, anybody that puts their life in harm's way um, and enables us to uh, enjoy the freedoms of the United States of America and do this podcast. Uh, We greatly appreciate you. That's all I got, Blummer. You've done uh, good, man. You've done real good. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I, th- I think you're doing a great job, and it, you you did a great job of handling this podcast. You did get me out of my doldrums, and I have to adhere to the advice that we give at the end of every podcast, and that is to get after it and believe it. Hi, Dave. It's Mom. I hope you have a great day.